The Interchange is brought to you by Fronius. Now Fronius gives you more control over your solar than ever before with its versatile hybrid inverter, the Primo Gen 24 Plus. Shale, isn't your dog's name Primo? My dog's name is Primo. <laughs> Thanks, Fronius. <laughs> Where'd that name come from? Uh, he is our first dog. Primo means first in Italian. Well, <laughs> the first inverter you should turn to is probably from Fronius. Whether you're storing solar or integrating storage, looking for backup power or all of the above, the Primo Gen 24 Plus has you covered. It comes with AC outlet terminals that provide solar power during outages without a battery, ensuring important loads in your house can continue to operate if the grid fails and your dog will be happy. To learn more, visit fronius.us slash PV or follow the link in the show notes. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey in Boston. The other half of the show is out in Berkeley, California. He is Shale Khan, and he's my co-host. How are you, sir? Hey, Stephen. I am doing great. How are you? Good. Happy 2020. Do you feel like we're living in the future? Um, you know, I go through, I have moments, flashes of uh, times that remind me that we're living in the future. Usually when I'm on Wi-Fi on a plane. That's the moment when I'm every single time I connect to Wi-Fi, even though it's ter- it's always consistently terrible Wi-Fi. Like if I have any connection that I have some flash of a moment where I'm like, wait a minute, I'm hurtling forward at 500 miles per hour, 35,000 feet above the ground connected to the internet. So you at those moments, I certainly feel that way. You live out in the Bay Area where there's all sorts of weird tech hitting the streets before anybody else sees it. And you pick Wi-Fi on a plane. Yeah, well, I mean, I do live in an area that is um, an early home to these little like autonomous delivery bots that are riding around the sidewalks. And I got to say, that does not feel to me like the future, or at least it does not feel to me like the future I necessarily want. (laughs) Well, this week, we are offering up proof that we are indeed living in the future, the energy future right now. Each of us is going to pick a use of a technology that would have not long ago seemed futuristic, but it's now reality today. We're also going to choose a technology that we thought would arrive by now, but is still seemingly far off into the future. Before we get there, I thought it would be fun to take a quick retrospective. We are both children of the 80s. Um, Do you remember what you imagined 2020 would look like back when you were a kid? (laughs) You know, it's funny. People sometimes ask question, versions of that question, like, what did you think you'd be doing when you were an adult? Or like, what did you think your wedding would look like? Um, I don't recall really thinking about the future a whole lot when I was a kid. I, I definitely did. Like, I really don't think I thought about it. You did? I definitely did. I imagined the most standard tropes for the future. Space travel, cities encapsulated in bubbles, weirder clothing. I was very cliche in my imagination, but I certainly did think about it a lot. Yeah, not me. I think I was just living in the moment. (laughs) Well, in the spirit of our episode, I dug up some earlier predictions from kids in the mid-1980s about the 2020s, and they are really good. Actually, some credit here. These predictions come from the Billings Gazette in Montana from 1984. They curated a bunch of forward-looking visions from kids, and uh, Matt Novak of Gizmodo dug them up and republished them. So I am borrowing from Matt's article here. I want to Read a few of them and get your reaction, Shale. All right, let's do it. So 14-year-old Kim says, in 2020, everybody will get fat and lazy because computers and robots will do all the work. 
That's funny timing because, I mean, one, it's like <laughs> a little bit true, but not that true. But also, did you see um, the newest, this is, I think, announced at CES this week, like the newest like micromobility vehicle is this vehicle that looks exactly like the vehicles in the movie WALL-E, which is, if for anybody who hasn't seen it, is like the, um, the whole premise is that humans have gotten fat and lazy and we all sit in these kind of like reclining um, pod-like wheelchairs and there's now one of these actually exists. So it's like, it's funny timing, but you know, that's not untrue. <laughs> I did not see that, but I did write in my notes here that this is the Wally scenario. So Kim was largely correct in her assessment. Good job, Kim. Uh, 11-year-old Trista predicts there will be video sports where we can jump into the TV and sing with the video stars. That's interesting. I mean, you know, if you count like VR video games as jumping into the TV, that's totally true. This is TikTok, man. Well, that, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you're not, no, no, TikTok isn't you jumping into the, unless there's like a VR TikTok, but I'm thinking about like, you know, gaming where you feel like you're in the game. I mean, it definitely exists. I mean, most of the online multiplayer karaoke games are exactly like this. <laughs> the, the category you are most familiar with, obviously. I needed something to do over the holidays. Yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> awesome what's your go-to karaoke song i don't have one i really don't oh come on i, come I on. honestly don't you're lying to all these people it's really sad fine 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 i'll admit i will admit it's mariah carey's butterfly how does that one go again <laughs> okay moving on <laughs> this one comes from s stewart johnson who is a middle schooler in wyoming stewart johnson says Automobiles will be silent and geared to flow smoothly from start to high speeds, eliminating screeching tires and thunderous mufflers. Atomic powered, perhaps, or by solar energy gathered in the entire outer material and becoming the propelling force through advanced technology. The fun vehicles will be a thing of the past. What age is this kid supposed to have been? Uh, middle middle school. school. Yeah. Come on. First of all, his name's S. Stewart Johnson, which is like a name out of the 1920s. And second of all, there's no way that was a middle schooler's prediction. That was a middle schooler's parent coming up with a prediction for them. Yeah, these haven't been fact-checked, okay? These have not been fact-checked right, I mean, me. Okay, so setting that aside, I mean, that was, a, that was a good prediction about electric vehicles, Yeah, right? Which do make a lot less noise and everything else about, that he described is true. They're, you know, they could be powered by solar indirectly. Um, so, you know. Kudos on S. Stewart Johnson's uh, mother who <laughs> came up with that prediction. But here's the twist. Not just electric vehicles, autonomous electric vehicles, because he says fun vehicles will be a thing of the past. Uh, that doesn't strike me as, that's not autonomous. That's just all the fun will have been taken out of drive. In fact, it's well, actually... Autonom autonomy takes away the fun of vehicles. Uh, first of all, I don't agree with that at all and second of all i actually think it's the opposite that we see today since we don't really have autonomous vehicles yet you know the tesla's big one of tesla's big innovations is it turns out that making an electric vehicle the way the tesla does can make the make a, a driving experience incredibly fun and that's like part of why they have been successful with their brand so 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 s stewart did okay but i don't <laughs> think that part is right okay last one from aaron iams Downtown, skyscrapers laid sprawled on top of lesser buildings, or where a mass of twisted steel, there was no living thing, the charred bodies of humans, dogs, cats, and birds lay everywhere, and the streets were littered with coins from the casinos. What the? 
<laughs> These kids in Billings, Montana in the in nineteen eighty four. I, I would have I wanna know. First of all, okay, so we have a big enough audience. Somebody do some internet forensics and figure out one was this real? Two, where are these kids? So they were what? They're middle school in 1984. Yeah. So they're in their forties now, right? Or like around, yeah, they're, they're, they're forties. Find these people. Cause that, first of all, they, that's poetic, right? Like this kid was meant to be a poet. S. Stewart was meant to be a, a futurist. <laughs> I don't know what to make of this prediction. Uh, turns out Aaron was a climate change fatalist long before Jonathan Franzen started writing in the New Yorker. Right. Okay, so as these kids have pointed out, the future is indeed upon us. We may not be living in the cliche space age version of the future that I once imagined, but we sure are living in a very different technological world. And the same is true in energy. Okay, sure, we still get most of our energy from the same fossil resources that we did a century ago, but we also have tech right here, right now, that feels like something out of a book or movie or the curious mind of a child in the 1980s. So what are they? Shale and I are each going to pick one that proves the future is now. So over to your choice, Shale. Okay. Um, Well, the thing that proves to me that we are living in the future is data centers, which is, um, and data centers, I find we, we haven't actually, I think, talked about them enough on this podcast because from an energy perspective, they are just totally fascinating. Uh, Here's a, a stat for you. Data centers consume now somewhere around 73 billion kilowatt hours of electricity in the United States alone. To put that in context, that's that's about 2% of all electricity consumption in the U.S. That is more than 29 individual states and Washington, D.C. It's also more than the bottom seven states combined. Um, so data centers, just like these things that are there to store and move around bits, uh, ones and zeros, comprise more electricity load than 29 individual states. That tells me we're living in the future. Why did you choose data centers over so many other choices? I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of the actual energy technologies um, are, it's amazing how cheap they've become and it's, it's great that we have them. They were, you know, somewhat predictable. The timescale might've been a little bit unpredictable. Um, but prior to this revolution, particularly this revolution in cloud computing that we've seen over the past decade, I, I, it would have been hard to imagine that data centers would have ended up consuming more energy than st- individual states. It's wild. And, you know, the other thing to me that I find really interesting about data centers, so there's there's a, if, if, I, if we stopped at what I just said, right, um, data centers consume a ton of electricity, and then you try to project forward, you know, I think expectations correctly would be, we're going to build a lot more data centers. This sort of data science revolution, big data revolution is is underway, but it's still probably in the early days. Uh, and so isn't this going to be a calamity? Aren't we going to end up with like a ton more electricity load? But the other thing that is super interesting about data centers from an energy perspective is that despite the fact that we are building more and more of them, load has basically flatlined. Because data center energy efficiency has been incredibly impressive. Um, There's a study from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs that's been looking at, they looked at all data center energy usage, and they looked at the efficiency of data centers, energy efficiency of data centers in 2010. And if that efficiency had stayed constant through to today, 
the energy usage from data centers would have been more than quadruple what it actually is today. So there's been this like massive revolution in efficiency in data centers, both by shifting to these hyperscale, really large data centers from the non-hyperscale ones and from traditional data centers that are smaller and on site, um, and from actually like making the servers themselves more efficient. So it's this story both of like sudden enormous electricity demand, but also really impressive energy efficiency. Interesting choice. Um, it's certainly relevant to our audience because you chose to focus on energy demand. But what's most fascinating about data centers to me is that it, I mean, it's like alchemy, right? I mean, you have these centralized facilities and you can basically, as an end user, through server virtualization, create as much storage as you want. You can move around bits and you can move around storage so that like, I don't have to build anything. I don't have to invest in anything. I can just click a button and double my storage or triple my storage or get whatever I need to run my company or to move files around. I mean, it's it's like alchemy. That to me definitely feels like the future. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, cloud computing was one of these uh, hot trends a decade ago that you like started hearing the term used all the time. And you it could have gone the way of so many other trends that were hyped and then turned out to be overhyped. Instead, it's turned out to be underhyped. And, you know, cloud computing has like taken over the world. And now, you know, there's this transition that's starting to go on from the cloud to the edge, where we're starting to do more of the computations within edge devices or near the edge. Um, so that you have to send less back up to the cloud because for when you need like really, really real time analytics, think things like autonomous vehicles, there's there's value there. But um, But it is true that I think data centers and what they have provided in terms of the ability to manage large volumes of data is like totally futuristic. Can, can I go back to the energy side of it for a second? Though? Yeah. Well, first I would say that I'm surprised that you didn't focus on the end use applications in energy and rather you focused on the energy consumption of data centers. Because if you think about edge computing along the smart grid or along the grid edge, I mean, there's so much that you can do with responding to real-time disturbances or issues on the grid with edge computing. And that has been made possible by cloud computing and the data center infrastructure that you're talking about. So I would have thought that you would have focused a little bit more on the end-use applications rather than the centralized use of energy. Yeah, look, I think that stuff is interesting too. And like you said, there's lots of ways that we're discovering now that you can use um, edge computing to do stuff like optimize wind O&M. Uh, but, and so I think that's all, that's all valuable and interesting. But to me, the, the biggest story around data centers is that like they are enabling this whole wave of technological innovation across the economy. They're fundamentally an electricity consuming um, thing. Like that's really what they do is they turn like electricity into data and uh, and so they're an enormous new player. Like we, we did a whole podcast episode about indoor agriculture from an electricity perspective. Indoor agriculture consumes virtually zero load today. Um, data centers are the single largest new source of load that we've seen in decades. The only thing that might approach it is electric vehicles at some point. So I think that side is super interesting. And so the other question that I wanted to ask is how you think this tech will shape the decade to come? Well, I mean, I think it, it looks like we're going to continue to see this shift toward hyperscale 
data centers and continued energy efficiency improvements. So the good news is, though we are going to build more and more data centers, um, I think there are there are a few factors that suggest that this may not be problematic from an environmental perspective. Might actually be good. Um, specifically, I mean, one, there's the energy efficiency, like the load itself may not go up all that much. Two, data centers have a pretty uniform load profile, right? So they're basically consuming energy 24-7. And in fact, they need uninterruptible power. So they they tend to have battery backup and generator backup um, that's like equivalent to this, you know, total capacity that, that they have. So there's a bunch of interesting opportunities there. For example, you know, you have a duck curve type problem. Well, one nice thing about data centers is that they are consuming energy um, during the belly of the duck, middle of the day or nighttime if you're talking about wind. So they can start to soak up some of that excess load. Um, two, you have these generators or batteries that are kind of sitting there most of the time, just like waiting to provide backup in the event of an outage. And those should have value on the grid, um, should be able to be monetized in some way and provide further flexibility. So I think that, you know, I think data, and there's actually a little bit of emerging activity around sort of demand response for data centers, the ability to shift around load a little bit um, so that you can actually be responsive to prices and the needs of the grid. So I think data centers if we're looking forward, we're going to build a lot more of them. And I think we're going to get smarter and smarter about the power usage as it relates to the grid. Um, And hopefully that's going to unlock a bunch of positive opportunities. The other thing to note, of course, is that, you know, many of the data centers are owned by and operated by these companies, the tech companies that have um, many of them committed to procuring 100% renewable energy or some version of that. And so, you know, the data centers are part of what's driving this corporate renewable energy procurement revolution. Fascinating. Okay, well, Shale's choice for the reason the future is here is data centers. Before we get to mine, I just want to talk quickly about our sponsor, Fronius. You know, Fronius is engaged in a lot of uh, future-oriented technology development itself. Its newest inverter, the Primo Gen 24 Plus, can help transform your home's energy security. It's a versatile hybrid inverter that delivers long-lasting backup power during outages. Thanks to multi-flow technology and integrated backup power, the Primo Gen 24 Plus can keep supplying energy loads and charge a battery at the same time. It's also extremely simple to install in the home, and you can commission it right on your smartphone and connect it to your smart home, thanks to data centers. With a variety of integrated features like energy management, data communication, and basic grid backup, the Primo Gen 24 Plus offers uniquely flexible solutions for your home's solar energy supply. Find out more at fronius.us, that's F-R-O-N-I-U-S dot U-S slash P-V, or follow that link there in the show notes. All right, Stephen, what's your choice? I chose two, but they're very closely related. They both have to do with offshore renewables. And my first is the size and sophistication of wind turbines, particularly offshore wind turbines. Have you seen the, um, there's like a very short, like an eight second clip that I feel like has been making the rounds online of a truck that's driving just one wind turbine blade to a site. And it, the blade just looks like it's like the, the scale of these things, the, the largest ones that exist today are just like they're hard to comprehend. 
Or there's like an image of of one up alongside a bunch of skyscrapers, and you can see how tall it is relative to the skyscrapers. They're just enormous. Yeah, exactly. And the biggest wind turbines, offshore wind turbines right now are in the 6 to 8 megawatt range, which is enormous. But now we're seeing turbines in development that are over 10 megawatts in capacity. And GE recently announced this Halade X turbine that's going to be 12 megawatts of capacity. I think it's already seeing orders for it. It's 850 feet tall. That's well over half the size of the Empire State Building. It's just a couple hundred feet shy of the Eiffel Tower and the Chrysler Chrysler Building. It's huge. And each blade is longer than a football field. So these turbines just keep getting bigger and bigger. And the capacity factors continue to improve. The, the Halade X will, in theory, have a capacity factor of about 60%. A 12-megawatt turbine... That is almost as much as the entire wind capacity globally in 1980. Uh, 13 megawatts, I think, is what we had commercially in 1980. Really remarkable. Yeah, that's wild. Um, those the scale of those things really blows me away. I agree. I think that's super futuristic. And you know, you think about like how do how do how do companies like Boeing um, produce planes and you imagine these you see these really big hangars in which they have to produce airplanes like this is just on a whole other scale in fact I wonder what I don't know the answer to this but I, I wonder what single thing not bunch of components put together into one thing but what single thing have we produced that is larger than the largest wind turbine blade I wonder I wonder if there is anything Oh, God, I have no idea. Who has the Guinness Book of World Records 2020? They can flip that open and probably give us the answer. Um, But I can tell you that although I I can't compare it to the biggest single thing, as I said, it's bigger than or about the size of some of the bigger buildings around the world or iconic buildings around the world. Uh, A single turbine can generate about 67 gigawatt hours a year or enough electricity to supply 16,000 typical European households. So it's just a scale that we could never have imagined in the 80s and early 90s. Um, And these offshore turbines, again, are they're regularly in the 6 to 8 megawatt range. Now in Europe, uh, they are getting much bigger 10 plus megawatts is quickly going to become the norm and 12 to 15 megawatts won't take long to dominate new adoption. And Wood McKenzie has done a bunch of great analysis on that uh, through the folks at Make Consulting. And they have really good supply chain analysis showing how quickly these turbines are getting bigger. And it's happening at an astonishing rate. Um, And I feel like the reason why I chose this is because I don't know if you saw the the new Blade Runner movie, but in the Blade Runner movie, in the opening scene, he flies in and you can see all these like concentrating solar power fields that, uh, you know, have been dusted over. And I feel like you could use these giant wind turbines in a similar futuristic movie. You know, if you were making a movie in the 80s about the 2020s, these would be the wind turbines that would be featured in the introduction as the camera sweeps over the landscape of the future world. Totally. Okay, so gigantic wind turbines was one of your two. What was the other one? Well, the other one is all about floating offshore renewables. Floating offshore wind obviously is the tech that people are talking about. In fact, one of the first commercial floating offshore wind farms uh, off the coast of Scotland stands 574 feet above 
the water. So that's like well above Big Ben, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the Statue of Liberty. These are huge, very sophisticated engineering projects. And so floating offshore wind allows you to get in much deeper waters, of course. And I feel like this is the technology that is that really felt very far away a decade ago that now feels very uh, doable. And doable not just because big oil companies that understand how to engineer these companies are getting in on the action, but also because of the new technology that allows you to reduce operations and maintenance costs or installation. And you got things like... Um, you know, Google's deep mind learning, machine learning tech that can predict wind turbine output uh, almost 48 hours in advance. You've got new types of drones to maintain these far offshore wind farms, suction crawling bots, underwater drones. You can process data very quickly to determine whether something needs to be fixed. You know, if you're going out in these remote locations, that's very important. So you've got these underlying tech tools as well as the engineering sophistication and size that allows these projects to become a reality. And the future is here when it comes to floating renewables. In addition, floating PV is becoming a much bigger market. Um, we've got about a, you know, uh, 1.5 gigawatts, I think, of floating PV projects around the world. And it allows you to put them at water treatment facilities, uh, to put them on top of uh, hydroelectric facilities where you already have transmission infrastructure in place. And now people are experimenting with, you know, deep offshore floating PV, which of course offers a lot of engineering challenges. But because PV is getting so cheap, you now open up all these other areas where you may have land constraints where floating PV makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I haven't I haven't spent as much time as I should have trying to understand this floating solar world, but I mean, it definitely is one of these places where like a decade ago uh I would have been like, no, that's crazy. Of course that's not going to happen. So the fact that it's actually starting to happen is is certainly futuristic. So now for the last bonus question, let's pick a technology that we thought would arrive by now but is still seemingly way off in the future. What did you come up with? Um, I answered a slightly different question than the one that you asked. Mm. Uh, apologies for that. But <laughs> um, I didn't pick a technology. I picked a, I guess, a market trend or something um, that I thought was going to arrive more now than it has, which is dynamic electricity pricing. Um, you know, the reality today. So the reason in dynamic pricing, meaning um, electricity pricing that varies by time of day at a minimum. Um, you know, the sort of simple version of it is you just have peak pricing and then the other end of the spectrum, the really complicated version is you have real-time pricing. And the barrier historically was a technology barrier, which is that we didn't have the data to be able to, to offer it and track it and help customers adapt to it, which came in the form of AMI, Advanced Metering Infrastructure. Um, 60% of homes in the United States now have AMI. So the majority of customers could theoretically have dynamic rates, but only something like 10% of those actually do have dynamic rates. Um, and the dynamic rates that we have are still pretty basic for the most part. They're just things like peak pricing. Um, and I thought that, you know, recognizing that there are lots of considerations with getting dynamic pricing, especially if you want to make it locational, it's a tricky challenge, but I, I thought it was going to come faster than it has. And I've been actually somewhat surprised at how slow we are to adapt pricing. And it's important for a bunch of reasons, but one of the biggest ones is if we, if we intend to unlock flexibility from the demand side of the grid, 
um, pricing that reflects cost on a time series basis is one of the most important things that you can do. So in the long term, it, it still feels to me like the long arc of history will bend toward dynamic rates, but I've had to adapt my thinking as to how long it's going to take. Didn't President Obama say that? The long arc of history bends yeah. toward dynamic electricity rates? Something like that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I probably should have I should have quoted it. <laughs> uh, oldest trick in the book, you answered the question you wanted to answer, not the one I asked. So I'm going to bring it back around to tech. Do you think we have the tech layer today, assuming we had the regulatory and political will to create dynamic rates, do we have the tech layer to be able to pull it off? Yes, we do. And we do have customers that are on dynamic rates already today, but we have the metering infrastructure, we have the data infrastructure, we have the cap- the, the, the rate analysis capabilities that utilities would need to be able to do in order to understand um, the impacts. We have the devices that can go in the customer premises that can allow you to shift your your electricity usage so that you save money based on these rates. I think we have everything that we need that to me, technology does not seem like it should be a barrier here. Okay. Presuming that you actually answer the question that you asked, what's uh, what technology did you think was going to be here that isn't? Well, if you remember back to about a decade ago, we started hearing more chatter about regional super grids connecting big fields of concentrating solar power projects. And this was when CSP concentrating solar power was superior economically to photovoltaics. And we really hadn't grappled with the reality of building these massive multi-country regional grids. Um, and, And this was like during the heady days when you had all these reports coming out about how if you built so many uh, solar power systems in Arizona, you could transmit that electricity across the country. And some of that felt very unrealistic in the way that it was described. But I definitely bought into the overall vision of building out some of these large regional grids. And I thought that concentrating solar power would play a bigger role in the electricity mix. So it turns out both technologies, CSP and uh, supergrids, are really, really hard. And I don't think that that's a future that we're going to realize anytime soon. Well, if at all. Okay, so you're, what you're describing, there was that one, I can't remember the name of it right now. There's that one marquee project that was supposed to basically put a bunch of solar in northern Africa and deliver it to southern Europe. That's the that's the kind of thing that you mean? That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, when you say super grids, you just mean high voltage DC. You mean super high voltage transmission, right? Across vast areas, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think we do have the technology for that. I think we ran into lots of other problems. CSP, we have the technology for it. It turns out not to be cost effective uh, relative to a bunch of other things for electricity production. But, you know, I think the reason those things failed to me wasn't necessarily the technology. I think it was a, a flawed idea from a, you know, political and regulatory perspective. Yeah. Uh, and I think the next question is, are we going to build similar types of high voltage grids across, say, the North Sea, where we can take excess electricity from offshore wind production and turn it into hydrogen? And uh, can we create usable products from that hydrogen? That's the next vision. I think it's a cousin of that earlier vision. And clearly, we have the technological ability to pull it off. But the question is, will that regulatory will be there? And will the economics work out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope, I hope we do stuff like that. We, we had that whole episode about 
the challenges of building long distance high voltage transmission just within the bounds of the US. So it's uh I'm I'm unfortunately a little bit skeptical about our ability to to get those kinds of projects done. I will say one thing that I find interesting on your concentrating solar side, you know, there's there's a, a small new wave of innovation around concentrating solar with a different set of applications. There's this company called Heliogen that um, just unstealthed recently. It's a it's came out of Bill Gross's idea lab. It's funded by Bill Gates and a bunch of other bigwigs. And their idea is to use concentrating solar power, but instead of producing electricity, um, use it to produce really high heat that can uh, replace industrial processes or produce hydrogen. So it's like um, sunlight directly to fuels or useful materials or chemistries um, that can solve potentially, if it works um, and it's cost effective, can solve some of the really hard to decarbonize sectors like the industrial processes that require high heat. So, you know, nice to see some new concentrating solar out there. Well, let's hope we can pull one or all of these off lest we envision the future of S. Stewart Johnson of Sheridan, Wyoming. <laughs> S. Stewart. Where are you, S. Stewart? <laughs> That's going to do it for our first show of the year. What do you think? What technologies are we missing? Uh, in coming weeks, we're going to focus on more tech stories. And I think at some point we're going to talk about this push for green hydrogen. And we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and broader climate solutions. There's been some really interesting academic work on that front. In the meantime, find us on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, if you're on a platform where you can give a rating and review, please do that. It helps us out greatly. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. We're edited and produced by me and Daniel Waldorf. We'll be back next week. Thanks for being here. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy.